This is Car Expert. It just really is odd to me how they've designed the vehicle and I just don't think it suits the Genesis brand. So to put it in perspective, even though it's an expensive Golf, by global standards, it's still fairly affordable. I just hope CSL doesn't become another badge in the range of badges that we see in the BMW range and I hope it's not usurped too quickly. Scott Colley, hello. Hello, Mandy Turner. You said my name first this week. <laughs> it's always a competition between you two. I love it. I should say it at the same time, Scott Wong and James Colley. That would be weird. Hello, James Wong. Saving the best to last. Hello, Mandy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James has played an Uno reverse card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw some photos on your socials on the weekend, Jay, where you went to a cars and coffee meet. How was it? Me putting stuff on social media? I never. Um, no, I did. Go, <laughs> I attended the Highball um, meet, which is a fairly regular. I think it's a. They do quarterly car meets out at the Bosch headquarters in Clayton, which is in Melbourne southeast. Um, it was the first one I think in a couple of years that has not been subject to COVID density limits. So it was quite an exciting thing because you could just roll in there whenever you wanted, and everybody could get a car in and you can walk in and observe the metal. And what I love about this event is that um, every time I go there, there's something different. There's a really, really good mix of things there. There's no real, you know, some car clubs or some car meets, it's very skewed to certain types of car or, or types mm. of owners. Whereas this, there's absolutely everything. You find people bring really old classic American stuff, old like old Alphas. Um, some weirdo named Paul Marek brought this old Humvee thing. Um, there's like this military cars feature quite a lot. Um, there's a, there was a couple of Porsche KNs with like these desert rally packs on them, which looked what? awesome. Yeah. They've got like all-terrain tires, color packs off for the wheel and the stripes and they're covered in dirt it's, it's almost what? as if they don't wash it but they look great um you get like old ferrari so there was like an f355 there that um and then when it drove off it sounded like an old f1 car it was fantastic uh corvette zr1s uh, there was a mclaren senna uh and it, bmw i don't know if it was bmw actually bmw australia but a group of bmw owners brought an uh an m an actual m3 csl alongside an m4 and then an m for I think CS that had like GT like performance parts on it. Um, so that was really cool. Um, some of the Volkswagen guys brought out the new Golf R hatch and the Golf R wagon, which was really cool to see them in person. Uh, there Did was you a take group your of- GTI? No, I drove the um, Subaru WRX sports wagon because I thought given there's quite a JDM presence at this meet as well, there's lots of Skylines and um, yep. MX-5s and all that kind of stuff. Um, I just thought I'd, I'd drive it because then I, I went on a, a, an extended drive day with some friends afterwards and I was, it was sort of part of my assessment of that car. So mm. that's why I took that. But uh, that got a lot of attention too. I didn't manage to park it in the actual meet until co- towards the end. And then once I parked it there, literally people were running up to me like, oh, that's the new WRX. <laughs> RX wagon wow. so yeah it was it, it's just a great event and um if only I didn't go so hard on Saturday nights would I probably get there earlier and enjoy it more because <laughs> some people start to leave at about the 10 o'clock point oh, wow. um but yeah a really really good meet and for anybody listening and if you're in Melbourne or you live in Melbourne or you're in Melbourne at any given time and that meet is on um it's typically on every quarter on a Sunday morning and um it's just fantastic so definitely if you're into cool rare cars uh, or just your normal stuff that um, you see every day as well definitely get down to highball I'll have to take my up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I um I managed to get myself in trouble with a Ford Focus RS owners club because on a drive against depression day, they all turned up and obviously the more people there, the better. But they all had the same car in the same color with the same modifications. They all had yellow covers for the fog lights. They had exhausts and things. And I was chatting to a couple of them at lunchtime and they were all sitting around a table. And I said to them, what did you order for lunch? And two of them said I ordered a Palmer and two of them said I ordered a burger. And I said, oh, that's weird. I just thought you would have all ordered exactly the same thing. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny. Yes. Uh, they didn't. They didn't take kindly to it. Um, they were a little bit offended, actually. Uh, the ones that actually got it and those who didn't, didn't. But um, yeah, a bit of diversity is good in in the car world. So I actually haven't been down to a highball, but I follow a couple of Porsche people on Instagram who chronicle them every single time and I, mm. I will at some point get there because some of the metal on show just seems incredible. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about um, this in news next with uh, Jack Quick, who joins us. About it's been twenty years since the Golf R or the the R nameplate. We've had some pretty amazing, I suppose you could call anniversary editions in the past, haven't we? I think just the R brand in general has created some really interesting cars. The first R32, which yeah, launched globally twenty years ago in Australia, eighteen years ago is one of the still one of the most aggressive looking little hatches that you could buy it had massive pumped up wheel arches and you they don't do it anymore but for a period there Volkswagen fitted its VR6 narrow angle engine to its Golf products and it just has this super unique sound mm. but from there they did V10 Touregs they did um, six cylinder Passats all sorts of really crazy stuff that in today's world where emissions are so important and where every single model line needs to fit on a modular platform, you just won't see them. So as a brand, it's got a really interesting history, even beyond the flashy special editions. To, to echo those comments, the the R brand, especially that original R32, that, that Mark IV Golf was a, a bit of an unloved child, I feel, in the history of the, the Golf. It was sort of it, the design was great, but in terms of what that generation was with wi- more widely, it wasn't that impressive. Then you got this R32 that had pumped guards in this bright blue multi-spoke alloys, basically look almost like it should have come out of a Porsche factory. Mm. And and that V6 was just an absolute singer. I've seen them on the roads, both the original and then the Mark V version, which um, they both sounded incredible. Like, like Scott said, they have this like brassy high high-pitched tone that without even without any sort of aftermarket modifications sounds absolutely bonkers and it doesn't matter that by today's standards they would be gti quick there's something really cool about them and the, the original was only a manual in australia it was also the first car that first production car that had the dsg gearbox but they only sold that overseas but mm. yes that original r32 was the first production car in the world with that dual clutch gearbox so it was quite a big deal for the brand and so 20 years later when you look at how that car's evolved it's still very widely considered as like the benchmark compact sports car in the sense that it's a it's a great comfortable daily it's stupidly quick you can have a lot of fun with it plus it has room for your kids or your dog or whatever especially if you get the wagon Um, and it's now expanded across other volkswagen model lines and they're so desirable they've got such a cult following and um that 20 years edition that they've revealed, which we'll get into in the news thing later, um, even though it's a little bit wild if you get it in black or white with the blue wheels, it's sort of, again, it's sort of like a Porsche thing where, you know, normally you can get these wild colored wheels on your Porsche 911 and now you can get it on like a Golf. So it's sort of, I guess it's just cool to have things like that in a, in a world today where everything starts looking the same. Do we know how much the R32 was new? I'm just trying to quickly find it online here. I'm going to have a really quick look now. This will be easy to do if you'll just hold caller, please. Oh, I six, feel like it's a lot. $63,000 for a 2004. Wow. Hang on a sec. Let's. I think I'm correct there. I think you might be. This says, yeah, 63 grand in 2004, and then it dropped to 56,490 for the R32 manual and 58,790 for the DSG in 2007 with the Mark V. So, I mean, it's GTI quick and it's GTI money as well in 2022. Mm, and way much more tech too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also, and I know we've gone on about this for a while, but you can't get a manual Golf in Australia at all at the moment. And there was a period there where they wouldn't even bring the DSG R32. They just brought us the manual. So times really have changed. To help us get through this week's news, hello, Jack Quick. Hello, Mandy. Now, let's start with the first news story. Ford Ranger dealer delivery gouging. This has been big news for people who want to get their hands on a new Ranger. Yes, yes, gouging. I um, wanted to start with that word because it's just such an interesting and so emotive, it's such an emotive word that I just wanted to say gouging. So we've had a few <laughs> people um, reach out to us just in regard to, um, so they're ordering a new Ranger, one of the new brand new Rangers, and they've had uh, one person contacted us in particular with a $3,500 delivery fee, which is quite a lot of money. And so we've had lots of different people uh, we've been looking in forums and all sorts of people have had uh, dealer, delivery, dealer delivery fees um, ranging from as low as $903 all the way up to, to around $6,000, which is a considerable sum. So um, 
Ford has gone on the record and commented about this, uh, more or less effectively encouraging this because um, Ford neither sets fee, uh, sets like limited as in they say, should uh, they don't set specific fees and they don't recommend amounts within a range either. They just kind of let dealers go at it. And um, which isn't amazing. So uh, Ford lists uh, on their on Ford's website. Um, Ford lists uh, an estimate of uh, two thousand one hundred and forty dollars for the delivery fee for the new Ranger. So that's that's what I think what Ford would be suggesting. But some dealers are doing three, four, five, six thousand dollars, which is way above this Same. claim and so much more profit to be made. And um, uh, I personally experienced this as well with my uh, Suzuki Jimny that I bought. All the dealers are just adding that little bit extra to the delivery fee just to get that little bit more profit because they're, all the cars, people just want the car. They'll be willing to pay whatever price. And that's one way that dealers can get th- as much profit as possible. This is not just a problem in Australia and it's not just a problem with Ford. We've seen Toyota with the Land Cruiser has been forced to comment on dealers charging big amounts of money for uh, cars that are dealer demos, but are brand new cars essentially. And also in the States, on some cars like the Ford Bronco, among others, it's not just a Ford problem. There are some dealers marking the cars up by 10, 15, 20, 30, $40,000 in the case of really in-demand cars. So, if it's not dealer delivery, it's something else when it comes to cars like this. And because they're in such short supply and such high demand, Ford's advice of shopping around to find the best deal, I mean, it's a good idea, but if the only dealer near you or the only dealer that has stock or is getting stock of the car you want wants six grand in deal delivery fees, you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, I do know that Ford really values its dealer network, so there's probably some conversations that can be had there. But in terms of like, just to echo Scott's comments, it's something that we're seeing across both the new and used car markets. Like I have a few friends and um, looking for cars at the moment, and if they can't get a brand new one, they're on to like the used car market and something like a bloody 15-year-old Corolla is about 50% more than it should be and things like that. And that goes beyond dealer delivery. It's just in general. If you can get a car now, they're going to try and get as much money out of you as they can. So it's just a shame because I know that um, Ford's already going to be struggling to get supply of the vehicle, at least to the amount that they want based on the demand. So if the people that are getting the opportunity to get the car getting burned at the point of sale, that probably doesn't set the best tone for what it's going to look like moving forward. Because we've seen sometimes manufacturers have said, look, we tend to make our money through servicing and not so much with selling cars. So maybe this is their other way of balancing it out as well. It, It might be. And, I mean, it's worth sort of mentioning as well that dealers are feeling the pressure of of semiconductor shortages and that sort of thing. Obviously, Mm. sales are strong, demand is strong, but if you can't get cars to sell people and you're not sure what's coming, it's very hard to plan and all that sort of thing. So, so I suppose not here to bash the dealers and it's more the fact that when we publish a price for a a car on our website, it's usually the before on-roads cost price. But dealer delivery and other on-road costs like that are generally meant to be within a certain range because ultimately it costs dealers very similar amounts to deliver the car, to get it all prepped, to fuel it, all that sort of thing. Um, so it, it, I suppose it's quite a, a hard one to defend because if one dealer is charging 1500 bucks and one is charging $6,000, maybe some of that could be accounted for by different costs at different dealers. But ultimately, there is no real reason other than we think we can get away with it. Uh, and I suppose regardless of whether the manufacturers and the dealers are doing it tough and regardless of whether they can get away with it, it's just not a good look, I think, is what it comes back to. Yeah, exactly. Next story, Jack. The 2023 Mahindra Scorpio N has been revealed, but is it coming to Australia? Well, funnily enough, Mandy, yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can. it's not exactly confirmed yet, but at this stage um, we've reported that it's likely to be coming to Australia, which is – 
extremely exciting that I would say. So this is the Ford, uh, the first, sorry, not Ford. I just talked about that, Jesus. This is the, <laughs> the first new Mahindra Scorpio body-on-frame SUV in 20 years, which is a very long time. And it's, um, as I just said, it's likely to be coming to Australia. And it's the, think of it as like the modern-day counterpart or spiritual successor per se i suppose to the suzuki grand vitara so that strange little medium-ish suv with the body on frame suv and the four-wheel drive and you can kind of take it everywhere this is kind of like the modern day version of that from from india and um so there's going to be petrol and diesel engines available just like the grand vitara did back in the day and it's going to have an optional four-wheel drive system obviously, so you can go off-road, which is very cool. And um, so the this new uh, Mahindra Scorpio is um, based on or will be based on the same platform as the pickup, which you might, might remember um, the, the previous gen now is kind of like uh, this very boxy budget ute that is very cheap. So the this might be previewing a new generation of the pickup. We don't know that yet. I'd just love to know, guys, is this the, the spiritual successor to the Grand Vitara you were expecting? Mahindra is quite an interesting one. I think the, there's a place for a car like this and it's because people who want to go off-road and people who want to tow and people who just want to live a rugged lifestyle, for some of them, a normal midsize SUV won't work. A Forester or a RAV4 or something like that won't get them where they need to go, but they don't want a big car. And if you look at all of the body-on-frame four-wheel drives in Australia at the moment that are selling really well, uh, it's the uh, Isuzu MUX, the Toyota Fortuna, e, I've gone completely blank, the Mitsubishi Pajero Sports, the one I was after there. They're all big seven-seaters and that doesn't work for everybody. So I get that the Jimny exists. I know they're a madman. I'm looking at two of them in the office right now who've <laughs> gone and bought them themselves. But... This promises to be a bit more usable day-to-day, a bit more spacious and comfortable inside, but also still very capable off-road without forcing you to lug around a big truck in town. So there's definitely a market for it, as the Grand Vitara showed. Here's hoping it comes at the right price to Australia. I am. I do have something to add on to that as well. This feeding off the Jimny, it provoked another thought in my brain. Um, this kind of like answers the question kind of. It's a bit bigger than that, but like the five-door five door Jimny that Suzuki's been Suzuki's not been talking about, but we've seen all sorts of rumors for a very long time now and be super cool to have this down under as that um, Grand Vitara replacement that I'd love to see. Um, I think I agree with the the wider team that I think conceptually a vehicle like this would have a place in our market. I just don't know if Mahindra's product is what is answering that question the best way from what we've seen with their previous product. It comes in at a you know an affordable price point, but it's still not quite there in line with market tastes when it comes to safety features technology design quality all those kind of things like i've i drove a mahindra pickup or was driven in one i can't remember which i had the displeasure of doing but i got in there and nearly um passed out from the plastic smell because it had been sitting in the sun for a little bit there's just things like that and it sounds really negative but I just feel that given I would expect for them to homologate it and get it up to like ADR regulations and getting a decent ANCAP safety rating and everything, it's going to come in at a price point where people are going to be like, well, I could just get a second-hand body-on-frame 4x4, which there are some very capable, reliable vehicles on the market, even right now with inflated prices. Otherwise, it's like, well, if I don't need to go off-road or I don't need to tow anything that substantial, I can get a normal monocoque body SUV for between 30 and 40 grand, for example. Like this car would easily sit in that um, price bracket. And you think of all the really, really good crossovers that you can get in that bracket that would drive much better, um, easier to park, all that kind of thing. So like, like what the boys have said, I think it would be something like a, a Suzuki Vit- a Grand Vitara replacement or a proper Suzuki Vitara replacement from those, you know, the old school Suzukis where they were like really rugged and cheap and capable, mm. whatever. I think we need a more um, like car-like Jimny, if that makes sense. I think they need they need something to bridge the gap between Vitara and, and Jimny that perhaps is a five-door, um, you know, spare wheel on the back. You know, I, I used to have a, an original Honda CRV, so I remember those days where those those soft rotors still had a level of off-road ability to them. I think we need something more like that. Whereas this sort of, yeah, I don't know. 
it, it has mm. it would have its place, but I don't think it would do that well. Mm. Well, from one extreme to another, Jack, the 2023 <laughs> BMW M4 CSL has been revealed. Does the S in there mean sexy? Well, it could. <laughs> no, if you want to, to stand for sexy, Mandy, you can stand for, uh, you, can, you can do whatever because you're paying. Oh, no, three, I think it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Because um, you're going to be paying three hundred three thousand, three hundred four thousand dollars before on road costs for that. And good luck getting one. I'm so sorry because they get, it's limited production worldwide to a thousand four hundred, and only twenty three are going to be coming to Australia. And so, um, if you forgot what I was talking about this is the bmw m4 csl which is a more lightweight and more powerful version of the m4 two-door coupe and um it's coming to australia as we've already talked about and it's going to be coming uh, towards the end of the year in uh, the fourth quarter of this year so powering this beast is a reworked three liter twin turbo uh, straight six uh, with an eight speed automatic transmission. Uh, so the engine produces 405 kilowatts and 650 Newton meters, which is 30 kilowatts uh, more than the M4 competition. So quite a lot, gonna be quite powerful. And uh, the zero to 100 sprint time is uh, roughly 3.7 seconds. And it has a top speed of 307 kilometers per hour. And it looks the part as well. It has these really cool um, yellowish headlights. So they're called BMW laser light headlights, which you might've heard about before, but they have these special little yellow bits, which are kind of race car inspired as well. And then I'm um, out the back. There are these really cool, uh, I want to say bespoke, but like special uh, tail lights with these um, special little uh, light threads in it. I can't really describe it, but like there's these really cool little sections and it looks... They look kind of like the filaments from a light bulb. Oh, yes. They're very thin OLED elements and the way they're designed and swoop around... Head to carexpert.com.au to actually have a look, obviously, (laughs) at at how they actually look. But the detailing on them and the the thinness and the... They're beautiful, I think. But the the design of them themselves is reminiscent of the little metal filament that runs through the middle of a light bulb and lights up and turns off when, you know, pre-LEDs when we use bulbs like that. You did such a a better job than explaining that because I was doing everything with my hand. I was explaining, (laughs) it just looks like this, but obviously you can't say anything like that. So uh, thanks, Scott, for filling that in. But um, with with this M4CSL, there's heaps of carbon fiber everywhere. It's going to be a lot lighter. But um, what do you guys reckon? Is this the ultimate M4? Um, Well how they've positioned it seems that way i just i don't know i like after going to a car meet over the weekend and seeing an original m3 csl and and how well designed and proportioned that all was where it's like it still looks kind of normal but it's been very mildly upgraded in terms of the design i feel like this is a bit there's just a lot of like body add-ons and things like that that are just very out there and the m4 is already a very out there looking vehicle i guess but it's it's very cool and the specs are amazing so i imagine they'll sell every one that they can get and I'm, I'm sure we'll see a lot of these hitting track days and setting more lap records it's already done a pretty good time around the nurburgring so i imagine there'll be plenty of owners and fans of the, the brand and the csl nameplate in particular that will be very keen to snap these up and um, take them on track it's Interesting how much headroom BMW has left in the M3 and M4. We're only two years into those cars' lives, two and a half years into those cars' lives, and already it's been cranked up for the CSL. We're expecting an M3 CS as well, which will be the four-door version with a similar powertrain. BMW usually then sends off its M cars with something potentially more aggressive again, and the previous boss of BMW M, Marcus Flash, has sort of said there's all sorts of cool old nameplates they want to bring back and things they want to do. So it's clear this M4 and M3, and they're already lightning quick and very well received by media and owners. There's a lot more you can do with it. I hope BMW doesn't go too far past the CSL because in the first M, in the E46 M3 where it used that name and in the old uh, 3.0 CSL, which is where the badge came from originally, they were the last, the ultimate, the most special and most lightweight versions of those cars. So BMW doesn't dust off this nameplate lightly. Uh, I have no doubt they've thought this through, but I just hope CSL doesn't become another badge in the range of badges that we see in the BMW range, and I hope it's not usurped too quickly. Lastly, Jack, it's been 20 years since the Volkswagen Golf R and V-Dub are celebrating with a special limited edition. 
Yes, Mandy, that's exactly correct. So Volkswagen is currently celebrating its 20th anniversary since it uh, revealed the the uh, Golf R32, which was the the VR6-powered Golf, which sounded really cool. And also, the tw- mm-hmm. as you said, Mandy, the 20, 20-year anniversary of the R nameplate, which is populated throughout every almost every single Volkswagen uh, in model in the uh, lineup that you can really think of now. So, um, yeah, Volkswagen's revealed this Volkswagen Golf R 20 years. That's what they've called it. And it's not a special edition model. I've been specifically told to not call it that. It's not oh. a special edition. It's an anniversary edition model. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, going to be coming to Australia in a roughly the, the third quarter of this year. And it's um, based on the, the obviously based on the uh, current Mark Eight uh, Golf R, but um, has elements that kind of hark back to the to the Golf R thirty two, the first launch in Australia in two thousand and four, which kind of throws out the twenty years timeline. But uh, globally, it was revealed in uh, <laughs> two thousand and two. So technicality, technicality. Um, so powering this uh, this uh, Golf R twenty years. I'm trying to say not trying to not to say a twenty years edition because there's no addition on the end. It's uh, powered by a two liter turbocharged four cylinder engine with um, two hundred and forty five kilowatts of power and four hundred twenty uh, four hundred twenty newton meters of torque, which is ten kilowatts more than the regular uh, Golf R. And um, technically, it makes it the most powerful Golf ever produced. And um, it has these really cool uh, kind of features that they've kind of tacked on where it has this uh, special turbo preloading so the the turbo turbo spools up faster and um, the throttle is also open for longer um, when you let the the throttle off kind of for that overrun. So it should sound really cool and it should be very fast. (laughs) And um, it also has this strange feature which – kind of sounds terrifying but i also love it at the same time where you can program the car to start at a rev or when it when you turn on the car it can rev all the way up to 2500 revs um which i would That's love not terrifying to, at all <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to experience that and just to just to hear what noise it makes i'd hate to be the neighbor of a person that does that but i really want to experience that so badly to be so cool and um a few other features as well that kind of make it feed into it sounding nice that it has um, a, i don't know how to pronounce this exactly please correct me if i'm wrong but it's an akropovic um exhaust is that is, is that correct akropovic akropovic oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> and um, it also has uh, all of these different uh, like carbon f- things as well. And there's also going to be um, optional uh, sticky tires for when you go want to go on a track day. Um, so I want to know, guys, do you, do you reckon this pay? Uh, do you reckon this uh, anniversary edition model pays addition to the Volkswagen R nameplate and also the Golf R? I guess I'll go first because um, I'm the <laughs> Golf owner. Um, I was actually really surprised to see this car um, be revealed. I didn't realize it had been 20 years, but also to see the appointments that they've made to it, it's actually quite interesting. I like that they've um, added the titanium exhaust as standard and like there's real carbon fiber trim inside. Um, the extra power and stuff, we haven't really seen that in the R at least. We've seen that in some GTI editions, but we haven't really seen that with the R at least in Australia. And the fact that they've confirmed it for us is pretty cool. I, I'll be really interested to see how Volkswagen Australia price this. Um, they've done a lot of special edition R's and GTI's in the past that have carried fairly nominal price increases. But the last time we had a Golf R with the, um, I'll say it like the Brits do, Akrapovich exhaust, um, <laughs> it commanded about a $5,500 premium and that was with fairly minimal changes other than it was basically the wheels and the t- um, and the exhaust, which the wheels were sort of already used quite a bit on other special editions. The fact that this has the exhaust, real carbon, this uprated engine and things like that, I worry that it may be priced in- to a point where it's competing with premium badge competition because an, an Audi S3 is already only about three or four grand more than a, a base Golf R to start with. So this is already going to be more expensive than an S3. And then depending on how much higher it goes, it could be, you know, in M135i Mercedes-AMG A35 territory, which while it's probably a faster and better car, um, I don't have any doubt in that because having not driven a Golf R yet, um, but knowing that it's been very well regarded so far. I don't know. I just feel like our market, people are really drawn to badges and, you know, brands. And while the Volkswagen R brand has a really, really loyal following here, believe me, I'm in the owner's group on Facebook and there are so many people. Um, 
the fact that there'll be people that want to buy this purely because it's an anniversary edition and um, anniversary editions have long been very successful for Volkswagen here. But given where the market's at at the moment, it might just be, it'll be an interesting sell, I feel. I think they're going to sell all the ones they can get pretty quickly. Australians yeah. love performance cars. We love a hot hatch. We love a Golf R. And the Akropovich exhaust alone, I think, will get people through the door. But I think you're right, James. The price is, is going to be really interesting to watch because already the Golf R is a $65,000 car. Based on what we've heard, that Akropovich exhaust would be a seven-odd-thousand-dollar option on the car if it were to come to Australia as is now, plus the other stuff as well. You could be looking at a 72, 73, 74, $75,000 Golf R. Uh, Yes, there won't be many of them. Yes, it's a special. Sorry, it's a it's a limited production anniversary edition. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to use the wrong word there, Jack. But yeah, it it, it is a it's a big number for a golf. Just to add to that as well, um, the uh, to put it in perspective though, even though it sounds like very expensive if a golf was to start at seventy thousand dollars or whatever, a standard golf R in the UK is about forty thousand dollars, and then something with this level of spec would be uh, not forty thousand dollars, forty thousand pounds, and then to spec it up to this level would be about fifty thousand pounds, which is almost a hundred thousand dollars here, and that's in the UK oh, where shipping is like one train away. So to put it in perspective, even though it's an expensive golf. It's by global standards, it's still fairly affordable. Judging by UK standards, our beer's too cold, though. I wouldn't read too much into that. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> That's a wrap for this week's news. Thank you very much, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. Paul Marrick joins us again, having driven two new Genesis electric cars. Paul, what have you been driving? Uh, so I've been behind the wheel of the uh, aptly named uh, Genesis electrified gv70 and wait for it the genesis electrified g80 um, and as you can imagine they're both electrified um, so these are what some people would call a compliance ev which is basically an internal combustion vehicle that they've taken the internal combustion components out and swapped them with electric components and uh, these two particular vehicles are based on the gv70 and the g80 and um, for all intents and purposes they actually look exactly the same virtually as the internal combustion options, obviously just without exhaust pipes and, and without a open grill. And look, I actually really enjoyed both of these. So these were pre-production cars that we had a chance to drive at a private facility. And while the GV70 wasn't amazing in terms of the way that it drove, it had some calibration issue that meant that it drove like a, a front-wheel drive car with way too much power. So it was torque steering, even though it was... Um, all-wheel drive. So, uh, But if you put that to one side, the actual technology works really well. It uses the same uh, electric technology they use in the Ionic 5, uh, the EV6. So that means you're getting plenty of punch and also that 800-volt charging architecture that allows you to do DC charging it up to around the sort of 250-kilowatt mark, I think, is where it peaks at. Uh, it also allows you to do AC charging on three-phase at 11 kilowatts and finally as well vehicle-to-load, which I think is really impressive, up to 3.6 kilowatts. The GV70 offers a port inside the car and outside, while the G80 is just outside for vehicle-to-load. It seems like it's got a fair bit of tech and a dual motor powertrain as well as something not all that many of its rivals offer. How much are we expecting the GV70 in particular to cost? Yeah, I was actually surprised by the pricing. So they think it'll be around the $110,000 mark when it goes on sale later in 2022. The reason I find that surprising is that the GV70 in general is actually a really nice luxury car. And if you have a look at some of the German competitors in this segment, they're all around that $150,000 plus mark. If you look at things like the I-Pace, the EQC, uh, the e-tron, they're all quite expensive vehicles, especially when they're fitted with the battery that this is. Uh, this is capable of a range of 450 plus kilometers, which obviously we haven't verified, but um, I think that that is a pretty healthy figure. When the Model Y lands here, the performance version of that should be around that $100,000, $110,000 mark. And while that will probably be quicker from zero to 100, uh, this is still not that slow at around four and a half seconds uh, from zero to 100. Um, so, Paul, uh, you've driven the top spec V6 GV70, and I remember one of your criticisms was around like price and positioning given even though Genesis is a challenger brand, it's still priced fairly close to established competitors. Given what you know or what we've been provided as indicative pricing and specs and then what you know about the competitor set, what do you think 
would be a point of difference for the Genesis compared to something like a BMW iX3 or an EQC that at this price point, a lot of man, a lot of buyers are looking for a premium badge and a premium ownership experience? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, obviously, with the German brands, they've done what the German brands do, which is release um, sort of worse versions of their electric products and then you pay more to get more. So, iX is a great example. Even though the iX is, is, is a nice car to drive, the new M version of that is like 220000 and I, I just don't know what they've added to it over the the iX uh, fifty, which um, which basically I thought had everything that it needed, and that was like fifty grand cheaper. So I think that what Genesis has done is said, okay, this is our electric vehicle. It is one spec, which is top spec. We're giving you all wheel drive. We're giving you seven hundred newton meters of torque every feature under the sun inside the cabin. And this is stuff that I've driven the iX3 recently. You pay more for that and it has barely any of these features and it's rear-wheel drive only. Um, so it, it's chalk and cheese compared to the German competitors. Uh, where, where they will have issues though is with Tesla. So obviously the Model Y will be faster and if you go for the long range version, it will be significantly cheaper than this as well and probably drive further. It's also, of course, on a dedicated EV platform. So Genesis has a dedicated EV product coming um, but in my opinion I just think that this is this is probably the, the better way to go and normally you wouldn't say that about one of these uh, compliance EVs in comparison. What about the G80 because I know BMW has the i7 coming but there aren't that many big electric luxury sedans out there so who do you think that's aimed at and do you think Genesis will actually sell many of them? Look, I don't think they'll sell many of them but I thought the electrified G80 was unreal. Like it is this one felt like a, a better calibration than the GV70, so it was more complete. And it handled incredibly well, despite the fact it is a whopping big limo. Um, compared to something like a Model S, I thought it, it drove better. A Model S tries to be a sports car, even though it doesn't need to be, whereas the G80 just feels like a very fast and well-sorted limousine. Uh, the only downsides to it were like the boot space. They it, It's like an old LPG Falcon. They've got this giant bump at the front, of, at the back of the, the boot, which means you can't actually really load things deep into there. Uh, you can't fold the seats down. You can't recline the second row because that feature's gone because of the, the packaging issue. So it is a little disappointing they had to compromise there. But in terms of the drive drivetrain, it is sensational. It rides beautifully. It's got that um, a stereo camera watching the road ahead to, to tailor the adaptive damping. Um, and I just think it's a cool looking car as well. The reason I don't think they'll sell that many is if you have a look at Tesla, um, who sells the Model S, the Model X, the 3 and the Y, the S and the X account for like a tenth of their sales. Barely anyone buys them. They're, they're hard to produce. They're very expensive. So it just doesn't seem like a segment that, that people should really waste time on. But I think the fact that they've just taken an internal combustion platform and put electric stuff in means that you can kind of get away with that. Uh, Paul, have Genesis said whether they'll have any sort of after-sales benefits to buying one of these cars? Like a lot of the um, premium brands offer five to six-year subscriptions to charge Fox, for example. Is that something that's going to be part of the ownership experience here? Look, they didn't mention anything. Um, and to be honest, that stuff sounds great in theory, but as we've experienced recently, the ChargeFox network is proving to be not that great. Uh, it seems that they're incredibly unreliable in terms of the charges actually working. Um, and that to me just makes five years of free charging totally pointless. If I bought a new car today and they said, you have five years of free pe petrol, and then when you rock up to a petrol station, some of the you know pumps don't work, and then you've got to wait for the ones that do while others have gone off shopping or something... It's just not a good system and I think that manufacturers need to be careful all signing up to charge Fox for their free charging when um, it just seems that it doesn't really work that well at the moment and we need a bit of diversity there in terms of the brands that are offering this stuff. Having sat in and driven both of what you're calling the compliance EVs, I know you also got a quick look at the GV60, which is actually built on the same eGMP platform as the Ionic and the EV6. Um, how does that compare in the way it looks and feels to the cars that have been spun off an internal combustion platform? Oh, look, it's really strange. I, I just think the car itself is technologically advanced and, and has a whole bunch of cool features, including the digital mirrors. It's got this um, gear stick that revolves around like a little globe um you know it, it just has a whole bunch of these interesting features but to me it looks nothing like any other genesis product and it 
I just don't get it. I, I think maybe the EV6 design should have been the Genesis and then the, the Genesis should have been the Kia. It just really is odd to me how they've designed the vehicle and I just don't think it suits the Genesis brand. So uh, in terms of the car itself, I am looking forward to driving that because it, it does share its platform with those others. But that also means it comes with a compromise of not having a great deal of storage. Uh, like the GV70, the electrified GV70 has about the same storage up front as the the GV60, which seems odd to me given the GV60 is is an electric platform ground up. So I think that they probably have a bit of work to do there on packaging. Uh, and I, I just think some of the stuff inside the car, while it does feel very luxurious, just doesn't feel very Genesis to me. So to wrap this up, you've previously owned a Model 3 and you have sort of signaled you're in the market for a new car, you want it to be electric. Is the GV70 in particular something that you could actually see yourself owning or does your heart still lean towards a Model Y? No, look, I think I'll stick to a Model Y when it finally comes out. The Genesis stuff, you know, is appealing, but I still have concerns over resale value. I know with the Tesla product, the resale value is quite strong. Uh, I just don't know where it'll be with Genesis. They do have a guaranteed future value program out there now, uh, but that's contingent upon you financing and doing all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm keen to drive the Model Y here in Australia to see what that's like. Uh, but for me, I, I don't really need the performance. My Model 3 was the performance model and it was just way too firm and, and unnecessary. So, I think I'll end up going with the long range. And I think ultimately the long range will have a far more usable range, better charging infrastructure and better technology as well in comparison to the Genesis. Both of those reviews are now live on Car Expert, and they're also live on our YouTube channel. So make sure you check that out. Paul, thank you for admitting on the record your Model 3 was too fast. <laughs> too fast for you, maybe. <laughs> Scully, you gave us a bit of a teaser just a couple of weeks ago that you've been driving the 2022 Subaru WRX, but now let's talk about it in depth with this week's review. Um, sort of the same, but not quite for this year. Uh, very different for this year. Uh, the new WRX is built on the new Subaru Global Platform, whereas the old one was based on an older Impreza. And it's got a new 2.4-litre turbocharged engine. So it's got a little bit more power. It's up 5 kilowatts. It's got the same amount of torque as before. It's still all-wheel drive. It's still a boxer. It's still turbocharged. It's still blue. It still has a bonnet scoop. I could be describing any WRX, but it, it really is a new car. The, the thing that has changed most, though, is the focus of the car. Subaru says that it wants this to be the most grown-up WRX ever, a car that you can, you can drive to and from work every day or maybe if you lusted after the original WRX as a kid 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, uh, and you've grown up a bit and you can finally afford one, this is an acceptable WRX for you to drive and own and take your, your partner out to a lovely dinner in but also still has the the balls-out, rally-inspired performance of the original. Well, speaking of performance, what's under the bonnet apart from just the engine? Uh, so a 2.4-litre turbocharged boxer. It has got 202 kilowatts of power and 350 newton metres of torque. Um, they're very similar outputs, outputs to before. Five kilowatts more in the same torque peak, but that torque comes on at uh, 2,000 RPM, which is 400 revs earlier, and it actually is a plateau from 2,000 to 5,200 RPM, which is 200 RPM longer at the top end as well. So essentially the boosty kind of laggy feel you got from the older WRX has been flattened out a little bit. Okay. You get a six-speed manual or a CVT auto uh, in the sedan. The wagon, which we'll get to a little bit later on, but both is and isn't a WRX. It's got the badge and it shares a lot with the sedan, but ultimately its suspension is a bit different in cars with passive dampers. It's on different tires because it's based on the Lavorgue sold in Japan. You can't get that with the manual at all. Um, and manual cars have a fixed torque split with their all-wheel drive system. It essentially just splits 50-50. It's locked. Uh, that's not quite true, actually. It's slightly more rear-biased. Um in the manual uh, and then in the automatic you can actually shift the torque distribution based on your drive mode so although Subaru says there's one WRX there's technically three WRXs because there's a manual sedan that's different to the auto sedan which is different to the auto wagon um how does it sound it's a little bit quiet no I was hoping you were <laughs> going to say that <laughs> Uh, it, it, it still sounds a little bit like a WRX. There's still just a hint of boxer to it. So you turn it on and it does that Subaru thing where it revs to 2,500. It sits there and sort of goes as it warms up. And I've owned 
four cars. I was doing the count back in my head there. Three of them have been Subarus and that feeling to me is just so familiar. It, I turn it on and it couldn't be anything else. The, the way it sounds, the way it feels, the length of time it does it for, the fact that if you, in a manual, don't touch the accelerator and just use the clutch, it'll flare a little bit and then settle into a normal idle as you pull away. All that stuff is still the same. It's still fundamentally a Subaru engine. But it's the same engine that they use in the Ascent four-wheel drive in the USA. And then a variation of it is in the BRZ as well. So it's not just designed to be an all-out performance engine anymore. And that means that you don't get unequal length headers, which were part of the reason that the old car sounded so unique. You also don't get that distinctive bassy sort of rumble through the cabin when you put your foot down. Even in automatic cars, which have adaptable drive modes, it doesn't have a, a switchable exhaust. And that means that you get a little bit of noise, but it's quite a flat sort of background sound to the point where even in the manual driving absolutely flat out on the road, a couple of times I bashed into the rev limiter, not because I wasn't concentrating, so I was concentrating very hard, but there was no sort of really loud audio cue that we were ripping around to the top end of the rev range. It doesn't go anywhere with that sound. So I know that that plays into the more refined side of the car, but if I were to buy one and I, I really like the car. We'll get to that as well. But I can honestly see myself buying one at some point. The first thing that I would do is take it straight down to someone to put an exhaust on the back and give me a bit more boxer. <laughs> How did you find uh, the interior and more so the driving position? It's a very Subaru interior, but that's actually – that used to be a negative thing. It's now a very positive thing. It's got the same massive vertical touchscreen you get in the Outback, and it's got Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, a full spread of features. It's got a really lovely chunky steering wheel with a flat bottom that feels really special and looks really special. And even the base model is really generously equipped. You don't get leather upholstery, but you get well-bolstered sports seats, you get the big screen, you get LED headlights, and it just it's a nice place to sit, even in its most basic form. The mid-spec sedan and the mid-spec wagon get these quite expensive feeling seats, and the top-spec one, the wagon especially, is, is quite a convincing rival based on the way it feels inside to the Skoda Octavia RS. There's some stuff that I don't love. Uh, I find Subaru's touchscreen is very good, but... There are some functions that are hidden in submenus that I really don't think should be, like the auto brake hold and the driver monitoring system that every single time you get in, you might want to turn on or off and you've got to press the screen a couple of times. Oh my God, I hate that thing. The driver monitoring system, we might we might go for that now. But it's, it's a camera essentially that sits on top of the screen and it watches your eyes. It's meant to be a, a tool to stop people from using their phones on the road and from getting distracted, which is a big cause of crashes. The problem with it is it also stops you from tilting your head or uh, or putting sunglasses on or it, it just it's, it's a little bit too sensitive and I get why it's there. It's a good idea, but yeah, it turns off when you put sunnies on and it can't see your eyes, for example, which kind of renders it redundant for a quarter of the year in Melbourne and half the year in other parts <laughs> of Australia. Um, and yeah, it on long highway drives where I might, you know, rest my arm on the central armrest and just prop my head up for a bit, which I can do because I have long arms and it all works with my seating position. Um, it starts beeping at you and telling you to concentrate. And my response to that, I can't say on the podcast because it's very sweary. It, it makes me so mad. Um, and I'm not alone in that, as James has said. Um, it, it definitely is the most grown up WRX we've seen. It feels like a shrunken version of the Outback's interior, but with some really nice sporty touches with a really good, low, supportive driving position. So on that front, I really think Subaru has absolutely nailed the brief. It's, it's a very convincing interior, and especially given the price, it's going to impress a lot of people when they open the door. The sport wagon, let's have a chat about that. You said earlier it sort of isn't a WRX, but it is. Uh, please explain. So, <laughs> please explain. Um, so, car expert readers and listeners will be familiar with the Lavorgue, which in the previous gen was a half Impreza, half Liberty wagon designed to be a bit of a WRX wagon, but not really. Australia hasn't taken the Lavorgue name any further. The previous gen car wasn't all that well received on the sales charts, and it was a bit of an unresolved thing to drive. It had quite a confusing suspension tune. And so, instead, it's giving us the WRX wagon. Initially, we're one of the only markets that gets the 2.4-litre turbo engine in the wagon. The rest of the world gets a smaller engine um, where it's sold as the Vorg. And 
in the top spec car, which gets adaptive dampers and gets a CVT, which is the, the same transmission as the sedan, it actually is quite a convincing WRX wagon. It's on skinny eco blue tires, so it doesn't have the same amount of grip. You feel the extra weight of the wagon compared to the sedan, but ultimately because those dampers, when you put them in sport mode, do a really good job keeping the car in check, it just feels like a slightly bigger, slightly heavier WRX that if you were to upgrade the tires, maybe it would be like the sedan, but with a bigger boot. The mid-spec cars are a little bit different. And we, on this drive program, initially Subaru said they're the same thing. They're just, a, it's a wagon and a sedan and they're both WRXs. But it was immediately clear on our drive that they weren't. Uh, and, and that's okay. I mean, this is not, I'm not here to whack the fact that the wagon's more comfortable than the sedan, but they're not the same thing. The mid-spec Lavorg, which doesn't get adaptive dampers, it's got a passive setup, is far more comfort focused than the sedan, which on the highway is great because it means mm. it floats along really nicely. You'd very happily drive it all day and you know the kids wouldn't get sick of jiggling up and down. You're not going to spill your coffee, all that sort of thing. But on really tight, challenging country roads with crests and bumps and dips and things in the middle of corners and essentially what you would call WRX country, the Lavore, that was a mistake. I didn't do that deliberately. <laughs> the WRX sports wagon on passive dampers just lacks the level of control you get in the sedan. Over crests, it sort of floats a bit and then takes a minute to settle. It rolls a lot more. It feels like it's pivoting with the weight going to the outside sort of top corner of the car. And again, that's quite fun. Like you can, you can enjoy driving it. You can get along the road really quickly because it's still a, a reasonably powerful car with all-wheel drive. But ultimately, it has a very different feel to the sedan, which is firmer and on the highway that's noticeable. But when you turn in, there's less roll. The nose is really keen. And then when you put your foot down, it, it, it doesn't feel as likely to get kicked off the, uh, off its line by bumps. It doesn't feel as sort of impacted by the outside world. It feels like a WRX, which is all we really want. So mm. I know some of my colleagues at other publications have been a bit harder on the wagon and said it doesn't deserve to be a WRX. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think as long as people know what they're getting in for, it still kind of fits the bill. But the top spec wagon comes close. And if you were to put wider, stickier tires on it like the sedan has, you could probably fool some people into thinking it was the sedan. The mid-spec car is a bit of a different thing. It's a bit more focused on cruising and on comfort. Uh, and less on outright handling. And given the people who are going to buy them, which will likely be you know younger families who still want a fun car but need space for the kids, I think that's completely fine. I just think to say that it's the same as the sedan, it's a full-on WRX, is maybe maybe needs a bit more qualification in that sense. Okay. Uh, Jabo, you mentioned you drove the wagon on the weekend. Do you agree with Scully's remarks? Uh, yes, well, I I haven't driven the sedan to really get a point of comparison, but I think what I what I really took away from my time with the sport wagon, which I don't want to give away so much now, given I have to write a review on it still, <laughs> but I, I sort of felt that instead of it being seeing it as a WRX, um, despite the badging, I saw it as very much a successor or a spiritual successor, at least to the. Um, the Liberty GT wagon of the mid 2000s. There was that third or fourth generation one that um, was very European looking, that really sleek mm, very nice. generation. Yeah, yeah, that was one that I really wanted as a P plater. And I know that a lot of my, I had I grew up with a lot of people that bought them as their first car, Scott being one of them as well. Um, one of the few times he's had taste. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, 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 the one that I had was the TS as well. So it's covered in STI bits, which just don't fit with the character of the car objectively it's a very nice comfortable wagon um you know you can drive it it is stupidly fast and it, you don't even realize how fast you're going half the time i just i really don't like the cvt transmission when it's in its normal settings um subaru made a big song and dance about how it's tuned it to be as close to an automatic transmission as it possibly can and when you flick it into the normal sport mode or the sport plus mode it does do a very admirable job um, um, I will say, and the response to the paddle shifters is excellent. Um, but I wish that they just made that um, the way that they've calibrated it to have those steps and make it mimic uh, a conventional automatic as the de the de standard setting. 
because mm. I want it, it. It has eight gears or eight steps, but in the sport mode, it's still holding revs a little higher. So it would be detrimental to fuel consumption on the freeway. So it'd just be nice if it had like a cut in the comfort or efficiency modes that it just did that, but like drop the revs more because you've got an infinite amount of um, possibility with a, a transmission like that. You can basically do whatever you want. And, um, you know, I was I was driving with Supras and I was keeping up with Supras on, on winding passes and things ah. like that. It's got so much power. But then also, like Scott said about um, the wider range, it just makes no sound. You, you, you're, you're punching it and whatever and it just it doesn't make any noise and it's just disappointing because they, they really had an opportunity there especially with the TS um, with its adaptive dampers and all the sporty STI bits to make it like a genuine cut price Audi S4 there's really nothing like that at the moment and maybe that's what the old Liberty GT was this new one just it still doesn't quite cut it for me and that that sports wagon uh, TS retails for about fifty seven nine ninety, so it's not a cheap car either. And I just, you know, I would probably either stretch to get a Golf R wagon, or I would get an Octavia RS with all the options packs personally. But I do; it is a, fundamentally, it's a very nice car. I think just you have to go into it being like it's not actually a WRX and it's not that overtly sporty, so don't expect that. Yeah. It is definitely one of those cars, and in, we split up our sedan and wagon reviews from the launch because we spent the whole launch talking, or the, the two days of driving we did with Subaru, talking to other journos, getting out of the cars and swapping between them, and Subaru did an awesome job with the drive, with a, ver- a variety of roads, giving us the chance to drive all of the different cars back to back. So. Subaru clearly trusts the product and that that's fantastic, but we also spent a lot of time talking about the fact that they, they do feel quite different um, and that's why we split those reviews up. I think it just means that if you are buying the wagon, I personally would be stretching, trying to stretch for the top spec car because those dampers do change the way the car feels and set up like that, I think it's a really nice, luxurious sort of mid-size wagon that I get James's thing about the Octavia, but all-wheel drive is a real benefit for some people. It offers plenty, and it's really going to be an interesting comparable when we put those two head-to-head. In the case of the sedan, as much as I'd love a car with adaptive dampers and a manual, you can't get that yet. You might be able to down the track. So my pick would be a, uh, a mid-spec manual sedan and then a trip to my local Subaru tuner to just free up a little bit noise because as a daily driver, it's comfortable enough that you could easily do it. It's got all the tech you could possibly want inside it's got a big boot down back and it eats a wrx when you throw it around it really grips and goes so i think subaru's done an awesome job on the fundamentals and i think as it it starts to work out the model range and as it starts to work out what people do and don't want from the car because this is the the first step in a a progression for the wrx we're going to see the range in the car evolve i hope we do anyway because ultimately what's there now is really good and I, i really do think it's a car with a lot of merit but with just a couple of tweaks or a bit of fine-tuning, it could be something really special again. Fantastic. We've given the sports wagon a 8 and the sedan an 8.1. Oh, so close. Both those reviews are live at carexpert.com.au. There goes another Car Expert podcast. What's coming up on the site very soon, Jaywo? Uh, well, Paul has gone and driven the new electrified Genesis GV70 and GV80, um, albeit they were pre-production cars. But those are two cut ve- vehicles that I'm actually quite excited about because uh, they are quite powerful. Um, they should be priced cheaper than their competitors. And it could really give Genesis an opportunity to make a proper impact in the luxury sales segments. I feel like their current product, it's still – people are – getting a feel for it and because there are so many established um, combustion engine German luxury alternatives for not that different money um, it might be a barrier whereas these uh, should be from what we've heard genuinely much cheaper than a, a German equivalent I think we see with EV buyers that they're, they're more willing to take a punt on an unknown brand or a, a new brand so I think there's a real opportunity there um, we've also got Chris Atkinson's review of the Lamborghini Huracan Evo. Um, so really keen to hear his thoughts on a vehicle like that, given supercars like that are usually the realm of Al Bors and Tony. And <laughs> Is this a, a road review? 
Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. So nice. he's gone and done like a proper road review. He's starting to diversify off the track as well, which mm-hmm. is great given that's where most people drive. So yeah. for someone with of his caliber to be testing out a vehicle's dynamic limits within um, public laws and roads and rules and everything, obviously he has a lot more um, assessing power than probably I do. But, um, yeah, keen to read that. And then we've also got um, Mike Costello's review of the new uh, Kia Sorento GT line hybrid, which um, there is a, a reader that has been contacting me for about three months named Wayne. Wayne, I know you've been waiting a really long time. We're finally getting you this review. <laughs> I know you've ordered one. I'm sure it's, I'm sure you'll enjoy the review. So, yes, another big, um, another big important vehicle for a brand as well. Great. What cars can we look forward to coming into the garage, Scully? As always, it is a mixed bag. Uh, this week, we've got some interesting stuff through the garage, led by a couple of SUVs for a comparison. We've got an Outlander Exceed all-wheel drive and a Sportage GT Line 1.6 Turbo all-wheel drive. I know that doesn't sound that interesting, but these are the best-selling cars in the country or some of them, and seeing them side-by-side is actually quite a cool experience when you get to drive them back-to-back and work out which is best. The really exciting one, though, is the Chevrolet Corvette that we have in the garage at the moment. Paul has had that out at Lang Lang filming it. Uh, and then in the garage that we have in our office, a few other people can see what's going on. And that car turns some serious heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, we've got a Mercedes-Benz C200, an i30 sedan in manual, which is going head-to-head with the WRX. I'm doing that compare and I'm really excited to put it together. Uh, and then a Honda HRV VIX, which is the base model, and the Mazda CX-30 G20 Pure. So bit of a mix of bits and pieces um that corvette though is, is an absolute highlight i can't what? wait to see the video they put together on that what color is it it is uh buckle up gray with gray stripes oh oh i, I was expecting you to say red or blue or something wow gray. no it's the the color of a melbourne sky in mid-june <laughs> uh scott collie and james wong thank you very much thanks mandy thanks, thanks mandy, mandy.